Ahead is the full recording of a sermon and worship service at New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo, Ohio. We hope that you've chosen to listen to it because you believe that the Lord may speak to you through the sermon, through the message, and you want to have fellowship with God's people in this uh, technology-based way. We hope that as you listen, you will grow to new heights in Jesus. Thank you and God bless.
this sermon, and I wrote the title of the sermon, I encountered online a comment that said that, the, that what I was writing out was often written, the devils in the details. And when Alicia asked me what the title of the sermon was, I don't know if I said the devils in the details or the devil is in the details, but it sounds very similar. But the actual title of the sermon is the devil 
is in the details, not the devil's in the details. I'm not sure if that's a grammatically correct way of writing it or not, but I, when I first saw it online, I'm like, that's weird. I don't know why you'd write it that way. And then now I see that apparently it does happen. So there you go. But it's the devil is in the details. All right? So um, go back about three years ago. Gosh, no, that's not even right. Probably closer to six years ago. And on the way back from visiting my parents in Tennessee, Sherry and I and the kids um, stopped by our friend Joe Ernspiker's house. At that time, they were serving in East Kentucky. Uh, he's back east of Cleveland now, serving in the church that he originally helped plant. And we engaged in a conversation. We arrived there about 9 o'clock at night, and then we did a devotion with our kids and their kids together, and then all the kids went to bed. We sat around. Uh, drinking hot chocolate because I don't drink coffee, and I don't know how people drink coffee at 10 o'clock at night. Some coffee drinkers probably know that, but I don't know how you do that. But I was drinking hot chocolate, which is bad enough for me. And uh, we started talking about how you can know, because his problem was he felt like he knew some folks, and I'm, I'm being deliberately vague here, but he knew some folks who uh, were not Christians, even though they claimed to be. And we started talking about how you can know whether or not a person is a Christian, if they are claiming to be a Christian. And you know my stance on this. I generally don't, I don't think you can. And so that was my side, my side of the argument. And he was arguing that you, Scripture says you can know them by their fruits, and there are certain things that you can know um, based on the way the person is behaving, what choices that they made, and like that, whether or not they're saved. I remember when I was a very young Christian, about a week, maybe two at the most, I definitely I hadn't been baptized yet, and we were in East Buddha Baptist Church, and I ran into a man at the backside of the parking lot, and, um, actually, I'm sorry, I ran into a woman at the backside of the parking lot, and she was telling me about a man who, uh, she had just gone to his funeral, and all the people that were at his funeral were assuming he was not saved. He was a belligerent, old cuss, foul language constantly, drunk constantly, had distanced himself from all of his kids. They all showed up for the funeral, but they, you know, they just all were operating under the understanding that he was not saved. And I, even then, a one-week-old, maybe two, something like that, as Christian, I was struggling with how they could know that, how you could measure a person's life. Fast forward about 20 years or so, and I ran into a comment by a man named C.S. Lewis who spoke on the radio during World War II in England, and we actually saw the sidewalk there probably where he got saved while we were you know, over in England, Sherry and I did, uh, which was uh, Oxford campus. But anyway... Um, he's walking home with a friend of his, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, you may know him, wrote uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and they shared the gospel together, and he, uh, he had been a professing Christian previously, but had walked away from the Lord, and from that time on, he gave his life back to Christ. That's my best understanding, anyway. So the point is, we're, we argued, and at about 3 o'clock in the morning, um, Joe's wife and my wife intervened and said, we're just going to have to stop this conversation now because it was a Saturday night. We had church in the morning and Joe had to preach. We'd get up and I said, oh man, I'm so sorry to meet up three o'clock in the morning before you got to preach in the morning, whatever. And he said, no, I was doing it too. And we apologized and whatever. And, and we all went to bed, got a good night's sleep, and got up and went to worship the Lord together. That question of that night, my good friend who loves the Lord and um, was probably instrumental instrumental in my young Christian growth from the moment that I was called to preach to the moment that we planted New Heights has nagged at me ever since. And so I want you to bear that in mind, if you will, as we look at this text today. And we're actually going back to, and it, part of it will be the text that you looked at last week, and there's one thing in there that really, that RJ had tried to say last week, and RJ wasn't feeling well last week, 
that I think we really kind of want to drill down on. Um, and, and I think the whole sermon could have been about that and it's almost like what he was targeting. Um, but, uh, we talked, he and I talked about it last night. I had listened to most of the sermon online while I was in my hotel room, uh, in London. And so I'll be able to reference kind of what he was talking about and bring it forward out of that text, but we're not going to stay home there. We have a lot of text. So I'm going to jump in. I'm going to read. I'm not going to be able to explain everything, but the second half of this we'll come back to next week and we'll get more detail. Okay, so that's kind of the plan. All right, so grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn, you guessed it, Joshua chapter 3. Thank you very much. Thank you for those of you who took a breath and made it sound good. I appreciate that. This is the Word of God, and I'm excited about it. It will change your life if you let it. Regardless of what I say, whether I get it right or not, the Lord will speak through His Word. He never fails to do that. Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. You know the story to this point. They are about to cross the Jordan River. You heard the text last week, most of it, and here we go. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you, that means lift you up in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters, to the Jordan, you shall, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear, hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you. I'm going to stop one second before I say those names. Notice, God said to Joshua, Today I will begin to lift you up and exalt you before all the people and show you that I am with you the way I was with Moses. But now Joshua has gone to the people and look at how he says it. He says, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you. It's not the same message, is it? Now Joshua is not altering what God said. Don't mistake that. What he's doing is he's delivering the overarching truth that the people before him need to know. And what are the two points of the little mini sermon, if you will, or little mini illustration? It is that you will know that the living God is among you and that he will surely dispossess. God is going to do exactly what he said he would do, and God is here among us. Now, here among us, Joshua has been told a message for him that God will exalt him. You follow that? So Joshua has been told that God will exalt him. That is not a message for the people. And so sometimes... People, you get a message that is for you, and it's not a message for the people. That doesn't mean you can't tell the message. But in telling the message, you have to look for how them hearing the message is somehow going to exhort them or encourage them. Okay? So he doesn't go to them and say, now you will see God is going to lift me up today. That's not what he says. He says, now you will see God is with you and will dispossess all of these people as he promised. All right? So now here we go. By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is, passing, is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, and it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, I'm sorry, the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. Stop one second. Remember, this is the Ark of the Covenant, which is the representative of God's presence on the earth. And RJ did talk about God's got to go out before you. God's, you know, you're following God and so on. It's all accurate. This is the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's, later they will call it God's footstool on the earth. Um, they've used it as a symbol of that already. So 14. 
And he's saying when the ark moves into the waters, when the priests take it into the waters, that's when the waters are going to stop. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people. And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. So what I'm saying to you here is, and, we, and this is what I missed the first 50 times I read this passage, so I'm giving you the benefit of my oops, okay? It says, when, they, when their feet stepped in the waters of the Jordan, and then in parentheses it says, overflow the banks. What's the difference? When, they are, when they're stepping in the waters of the Jordan, they're not stepping in the river, okay? If you look on a map or you look on a geographical survey, you see where the river is, then if you would see it now, you'll see it might be 24. Anybody ever seen the Maumee overflow its banks? Any, if the Maumee River goes up into downtown Maumee, which has happened, by the way, not in our time, but has gone up into downtown Maumee, then when you walked up to the edge of that water and stepped in the very edge and your foot first touched that water, you would not be thinking of it as the Maumee River. You would be thinking of it as the flood, Right? And so these waters are considered surplus or extra. So there's a differentiation. They, they have not yet stepped in the River Jordan. See what I'm saying? They're just getting wet by the overflows that are coming from the River Jordan. Does that make sense? So he says, as soon as it gets, their feet begin to get wet, dipped in the edge of the water, and he, and he side notes, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. In other words, they're not in the, the proper Jordan yet, but they're in the overflow the, the, of it that the waters which were flowing down from above, so the waters that were filling the river and the overflow, stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam. So this is like 15 miles back up the river. So I think Brother Tony brought that up at the end of the service last week, actually. The city that is beside Zarathon, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of, the, of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the, the rest of the river just goes away. That rivers only flow one direction. So the rest, just because it's no longer fueled, it just kind of goes away. And so people ask, well, how big was the gap? Well, it was from Adam all the way down to eventually the Salt Sea, if it, you know, if it all got down before the water started flowing again anyway. They were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. So they're going right into that big city. We have already seen that Jericho is the city that must be taken. It is the anchor city. It is the control of the region. If you can't take Jericho, you can't touch the promised land. And so they're going right to the heart of the matter. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. And there, RJ sort of point out and reminded you that there, there could have or should have been things on the bottom of the river and God took care of those things so that they could easily cross. And we don't know if they were stepping around things or whatever. We know there's some rocks there because of what we're about to see. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan that the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. Okay, so this is a formula that often occurs with God. Like a lot of times God will say, do like one person from each tribe, he'll say, uh, vote by lots and pick a leader from each tribe, have everybody from every tribe come forward, a representative, and then when you find the right one, then that's the right tribe. So there's a lot of that that goes on. I just want to kind of point that out to you because it's going to come up again later. One man from each tribe and command them saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So from the middle of the river, 12 stones to where they're going to camp tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men whom he had appointed 
from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the son of Israel. So this is not a pebble. This is not the word for a pebble. This is the word for the, a rock a healthy man can carry on his shoulder. So think uh, maybe 30, 50, 70 pounds. It doesn't say in the text, but this is a big rock. Okay, and They're going to take big rocks. But it is a rock limited to what one man can carry. They're not using a stretcher or a pulley, right? Okay, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what did these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. And there's probably about three sermons that could come out of that two verses right there. We're not going to get any of them today because we're getting one that's, I think, more overarching. But notice that God is marking a moment in time, uh, like you might take a photograph, and God doesn't take pictures, because God doesn't forget, right? But he is marking a moment in time with the stones that are being removed out, and these are stones that are being removed out of the Jordan, which is out of the dry land that God essentially created. Now, mind you, they've already walked past all of these stones, haven't they? They've already navigated around through all the broken terrain. It's already been done. They're across the river now, but now they're going to go back and take some of the burdens, some of the barriers that were in the river there that they crossed past, pick them up, and carry them now onto their new campsite. So you can see the symbolism that is developing. Okay? And let me simply say, although this is not my sermon for the day, that we mustn't forget where we have been despite the fact that someone, so many will quote the verse that says, and all old things have passed away, to tell us, well, you just need to forget where you have been. But God is showing us that we shouldn't forget where we've been, especially not in an incredible act of the Lord. You should not forget the day. You should have a spiritual birthday. You should not forget the day that you were saved. You should not forget the events that you were saved. You should not forget what you were saved from. Even though you can't know what hell is like, but you know what it was like for you on earth before you got saved. You shouldn't forget that. Okay? All right, back on task. Verse 8. And thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan. Now notice this part was not commanded by God per se. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. So right where they had been standing, he set up 12 stones there, a pile of uh, almost kind of like an altar kind of thing or a, a marker, if you will. And they are there to this day. Where? Well, under the Jordan River. Right? Under what God removed. Lost, if you will. When we were when we went to uh, Westminster Abbey in the middle of downtown London, it's Westminster Abbey. It is the Church of England, um, and they basically have a church that's they don't have a separation of church and state um, like we do, and so they they have a state church, and the Church of England is that state church. And at Westminster Abbey, there is a a spot on the floor that is marked off that no man has ever stepped on, and buried under that spot is a soldier from World War II, and he is a man who no one knows his name. He is the unknown soldier, and no one is allowed to step on his grave. Now, there. before you think that's a big deal, what's that? Yeah, and before you think that's a big deal, realize that all of the other graves, the poets, the historians, the kings, the dukes, whatever, that are on the floor, are you can walk on. Not like in America, you go through a graveyard and try to stay to the road so you don't step on the grave. There, they just, that's, everything is a grave, right? And so, 
his grave, no one has ever stepped on it. And no one knows who he is. But he's symbolic of all of the men from the UK who died in World War II that nobody knew who they were, right? Joshua puts rocks in a pile under the river that no one's ever going to see. Symbolic of the things that God has done to bring us this point that we will never know. The Spirit says to me that it's probable that every single person in this room has had their life miraculously saved as many as a dozen times. That, so, that God has orchestrated a way to, to turn a semi on a different route. You know, the day you were all fussing and throwing a fit because you ran out of gas or got a flat tire, that day God probably saved your life. And you say, well, we can't know that. Yes, we know we can't know that. But that doesn't mean that God is not at work. You follow? So while we're fussing and throwing a fit about the things that God allowed to happen in our lives, we might want to stop and think about the fact that God is actually on our side. And if he allowed something bad to happen to you, then probably, and by the way, he made it out of rocks that were in the Jordan, rocks that they had to cross over to get to where they now, he could have made it before they crossed over. The rocks that were gathered to go to the camp could have been removed first. He could say, hey, on the way, you guys just each pick up a rock. You know, that's the efficiency that we love to see and hear about, right? But he didn't do that. They took rocks that they had already crossed over, things that they had already had to deal with. And then he set up 12 of them in the middle of the river where no one will ever see it. Interesting. Verse 10. For the priests who carried the ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array. Remember, those are the tribes that they, they have the pack. They're allowed to keep the lands on the other side of the Jordan, but their men, all their men, have to come out and fight. We covered all that back in chapter 1. Okay. And they crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. Oh, you know what just occurred to me that I didn't even put in my notes? That means that these guys, those tribes, the 12 tribes, each picked up a stone. And if they had not kept their promise to Moses back in the day through Joshua, they wouldn't have been there for Joshua to have each one of them to pick up a stone. That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Okay. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua. This is 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him, which means they thought of him as holy, just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Now the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, come up from the Jordan. And it came about when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, And the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up to the dry ground that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. And so they walked up from the Jordan, up up from where the river normally flows, the Jordan riverbed, if you will, because that's all you'd know at that time, right? They walked up from there, and I submit to you, up onto dry ground, because it says that, up outside where it's overflowed, And then the waters come back down and fill the channel that it normally flows in and overflows the banks up to where, short of where they have gone. Follow that? It's a very interesting image if you see it. They have not crossed the Jordan River. They have crossed the Jordan River plus all of the overflow and surplus from the moment they first touched the overflow and surplus 
The entire river and all the overflow stopped. Then they crossed the Jordan and the surplus area again, and then the water comes back again. Okay, almost done with the text. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until he was until we had crossed that all the people of the earth may know, this is important, this is God's motivation, that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, I wish that it was a happy ending to this story, don't you? I wish that because of this, they had actually feared the Lord their God forever. We know that's not true. And we also know that God already gave Moses that song back in Deuteronomy 31, that he was supposed to teach all the Israelites so that they would realized when they were walking away from him to come back because of all that he had done. So it really doesn't end all that well. After everything that they did and all the steps that God took here, there is an intermediary place where they start worshiping false gods and burning their firstborn children in the fire to the God of Molech and all that nastiness. Just pretty crazy. All right, so there's a couple things, three things really, that I want you to see in here. And then I say three things, but I say it a little tongue-in-cheek because the last one's a whole bunch of things. All right, so the first one is... um, Notice that God is a witness. God is a witness. In fact, God is a witness to Joshua in this text, uh, who coincidentally is the man who has been given the name Yahweh saves, the same name as Jesus. So wait, God is a witness to Jesus. Oh, well, indeed, God is a witness to Jesus. John 5, 32, Jesus says, the one who witnesses of me, and he's referring to God the Father, right? And they wouldn't believe him. God is a witness to us so that our witness for God becomes a witness for us as long as our witness for God is for the God of the universe who is for us. You follow all that? It's a little complicated, isn't it? As long as your life and your voice is a witness for the holy God of the universe, then the holy God of the universe will be a witness for you because he loves you. So, Joshua was told, today I will exalt you. I I submit to you that today God will exalt you. God will lift you up and make you a witness. And then you are supposed to be a witness for him. And then in return, he will make you a witness. As I was thinking through the times in in, in our young church and church plant that this had occurred, it's amazing the times that we had seen God say that this church was his church. That this people, and, it, and I look around the room and I see the faces of people who have had that experience where no one, would, no one could do what they did. No one, no one would think that those events would happen. And yet God showed up and did something amazing. I remember the first time Miss Chris pushed to share the gospel with somebody at the University of Toledo. And it was, it was not a, not that she'd never done it before, but that she turned the conversation. And then right after she goes, wow, you know, and she told me what she did, but we gave all glory to God. I remember when I was out witnessing and I stopped on a front 
a woman's front porch, and we were we were doing um, Christmas caroling actually. And right afterwards, I was the person who was supposed to lag behind and witness to her. And she was talking about how she wasn't sure she was saved, and she prayed to surprise. And I said, "Okay, well now you need to get into church and whatever." And she said, "Well, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. Blah blah blah. I work two jobs, and I babysit, and I hardly ever get any sleep." And I said, "Well, you know, you accept that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, right?" Yeah. And I said, "Well, then you know you need to be worshiping Him, and you need to be with other people that are doing that, right?" And she said, "Yeah." And she said, "But I work two jobs, and I uh, babysit on weekends, and I don't know how I could possibly do that." And I said. What will it take for God to get your attention? And as I was saying it, I had a twinge of fear in my heart of what her answer might be. And I said, what will it take for God to get your attention for you to actually put him first? You just said you're going to put him first, be saved, live for him for the rest of your life. That's what you said and you prayed it. And now what will it take for that to actually be true? And she said, well, I guess God will have to smack me. God will have to shake me. God will have to do something in my life to really get my attention. And she didn't come to church and Lo and behold, the next year at Christmas time, I saw her again. And she said, oh, you know, I've been meaning to come, I've been meaning to come, but I've been so busy. I'm working two jobs, and I'm babysitting, and I've been meaning to come. She said, I'll come. So she came. And uh, she came about, I think, two times, maybe three times. And she brought the grandkids, which was always a possibility. They were all, they weren't even like little. They were like first grade up and whatever. She brought the grandkids, and they went to God's kids, and she sat in, and she seemed to really enjoy herself, and she said, said positive things, whatever. And then... She stopped coming, and I went and found her, and I said, what's going on? You finally started coming, and now you stopped coming. She said, I'm working two jobs, and I'm babysitting on the weekends, and I'm just so tired, and the one kid was sick, and I stayed home to take care of them, and now, and now they're not sick, but I just can't I just can't do it. I just can't bring myself to plan it in my schedule. And I said, I said, I don't think that's a good idea. I said, I think God was being patient. Did you know God was being patient? Yeah. I don't think that's a good idea to back off now. And she said, well... God's going to have to get my attention. So, next, come next year, Christmas caroling. This is the third year in a row. A Christmas carol in front of her house. And she obviously was not feeling well. She was leaning on a cane. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, I was on the job at one of the restaurants that I work at. And I had a massive stroke. And I was down in bed for almost two months. I couldn't babysit. I couldn't work either one of my jobs. And she said, um, I'm up now, and I've been thinking a lot about it. I should probably be in church. And I just couldn't bring myself to say, said you wanted God to smack me. So she said it. God testifies to his people as his people testify to him. It is happening. I sat down with a friend of mine uh, whom I tried to share the gospel with on multiple occasions, and I said, I, I hear what you're saying, but I said, I really have to, I have to keep my peace. I can tell you about Jesus. And he said, I knew you would. I knew you would have to tell me about Jesus. He wasn't saved. God is at work in the hearts of people, and he is testifying. And actually what you see is that out of that flows a belligerence. Out of that flows a persecution aimed at God's people. The more God lifts us up, if you will, will you ever think about why it is? I mean, does anybody in this room, and I'm just going to be transparent, does anybody in this room feel like a belligerent, prideful, arrogant, rude Christian? Raise your hand. Why does everybody in the world think all Christians are highfalutin, that we think that we're better than they do. In reality, I, I think I'm the worst sinner there ever was. Not for your sin, you have your own sin to deal with, but for my sin, my sin was what would send me to hell. I'm the worst person there ever was. I would send myself to hell. And then one day God came and said, look, you don't have to do that. Why would you do that? That's really dumb. And I'm like, you know what? That is really dumb, God. 
okay, so what do you want me to do? And he said, well, follow Jesus. And I said, okay, I'll do that. That sounds like a better plan. And basically, that's how I got saved. And then everything that I have done that's been good all the way along, I count it as filthy rags because I know that it could never save me, right? So when I started to preach, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And God said, yes, 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 you're going to do that. And finally, okay, fine, I'll do it. And then I never once said, hey, I'm a great preacher because the reality is I'm not. I may be okay, but if you get God's will, God's word for your life out of what I'm saying, it's not me. It's God, which I have no problem with saying if I screw this up, at least hear what God has to say, right? And so if that's who we actually are in Christ, why does the world think everybody that's a Christian is an arrogant, judgmental jerk? Not because we're doing it, but because God is lifting us up. So when they sit at home at night, and and I'm not trying to be rude about this, but they're indulging in their sin, they look at who they know that's not, and they say, that judgmental jerk, how dare he not also be blah, 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 like I am. See, the more God lifts you up, the more they rebel against it because they don't want to follow God. And so you're going to have that problem develop in your life. Where you, so I've had people where like, they come up to me and they just start cussing me out. I'm like, I don't know you. What did I ever do? I, I haven't hurt you at all. And then the, I've never had an explanation, you know? And the flip side of that is I've also had people who because they heard or realized that I was a Christian, because they loved the Lord, they come and they treated me with great respect and love and care and tenderness. Because I also am a Christian and so are they. Which is appropriate. So you just stop and think about the other Christians that are in this room who are genuinely trying to live for the Lord the best they can. And you need to, we need to be building each other up and supporting each other because as God lifts us up, we're going to get beat up. And as not, not by God, but by the people who hate God or people who are rebelling against God. I hate God is strong because I don't think they mostly give him that much thought. But they are rebelling against God and they are the, what's the word? The wrath of God is against them, Ephesians 2. And they see you as his representative. And when somebody comes into your house and beats you up, later when you see them, how do you feel about them? Well, you are God's representative. So when God comes in their house and he says to them, look, you've got to change. You've got to do this differently. Let me help you. And they say, no. The next time they see you, they see God. God is a witness to those who are his witness. He is at work to exalt those who will exalt him. Jesus was exalted so that he might exalt God. God is a witness. And you were created in his image. And he asks you, he says, you will go forward and be my witnesses. It's interesting in, in a way because in the Greek, the word witness is martyro, and that word is the same place we get our word martyr. God died for you, and now he expects you to die for him, or at least to live for him. And then if you need to die for him, then you'll know it when the time comes. The witness of God is things like his prophecy. He witnessed about Jesus through prophecy. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. He prophesied then what Christians would be like. God taught what Christians will be. We ought to measure up to that. Loving him, following his commands, loving one another, fruit of the spirit, fruit as works, proper language as we become his spokespeople. The, the Bible teaches all these things are about, true about Christians, but man, it would take a lot to measure them, wouldn't it? Can you be around to hear everything that anyone says? Can you be there to know what's going on in their heart when they're doing their works? God's Holy Spirit testifies, the Bible says, but 
he is our witness, but he witnesses in the heart of the believer that the believer is saved. He doesn't witness in my heart that you're saved. He witnesses in your heart that you're saved. The test of time witnesses when something lasts and lasts and lasts. I think of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. He's talking about the disciples and he said, there are all these men who've raised up and talked about God in this way and they're all gone now. So just let these guys go. And if they stay the course and really do what they say and they can continue to do miracles and whatever, then you wouldn't want to find yourself fighting against God. So just let them go. Don't have anything to do with them. The test of time witnesses that we are saved. But you may not be around long enough, or you may not be there long enough to get that. And then the diversity of details of the fruit across a whole life reborn testifies. So if you could measure the total of the fruit of my life, you could easily tell whether I am saved or not. If I could measure totally the fruit of your life, I could tell whether you were saved or not. But I can't do that. But God can. And God doesn't have to measure to know. He knows. Clearly, God cannot be fooled. And Romans 10, 9 and 10 applies. You must believe and commit to your life. It's interesting because that commit your life to the Lord, that word believe has been used as a cop-out. Well, as long as I believe, I'll get into heaven. From John three sixteen, you know, for whosoever believeth or, for, or whoever believes has been used as a cop-out. As long as they believe, they're going to get into heaven, right? But when the Bible was written, there was no believe and not be. The first part of believe is be. In, after the Enlightenment, they started to say you could believe without being. So I believe in gravity, but I can fly by flapping my arms. That's just stupid. Gravity is real. You believe in it because it's real, and you can't fly by flapping your arms. Right? You believe in Jesus, but you don't live for Jesus? That is at best a contradiction, and it worths a lie. So people who say they believe in Jesus, but there's no Jesus in their life, they know. God knows. You may never know. All right. God is a witness so that your witness for God becomes a witness for you as long as your witness for God is for the God who loves you, the real God. Indeed, God is a witness. The second thing I want you to see in there then is the stuff that God can move out of your way is bigger than what you can see or perceive. Now, this was what RJ was kind of getting at last week as he was talking about how God could make your path smooth. what Ron was talking about this morning when he was talking about how you, the wisdom of the Lord will make your paths straight and so on. The bottom line is the place that God is taking you is not just a success, success in getting to heaven, for example. We all think, I'll be saved if I can make it to heaven. You know, we look at Paul's salvation description. He says, I don't want to come to the end and find out that I wasn't saved after I preached to everybody else to be saved. And you're talking, you start thinking about what well, that means, whether or not he's going to make it to heaven. I want to make it to heaven. That'll be my success. No, your success is something considerably more than that. It is an elevation of your very being. It is a changing of who you are from the inside out. Every fiber, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, that's the success that God is looking for. It's about how you live now as if you would actually arrive. And if you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved and going to heaven, and I believe you can, I don't believe I can do that for you, but I believe you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it ought to affect your every action now. If you know where you're going later today, we went to um, we went to High Clear Castle while we were in England, and we neglected to look at our reservation and find out that they were going to serve us a proper English tea. I wouldn't have known what that meant, but sure, it would have. And proper English tea is basically like a huge meal. <laughs> it's a uh, 
sandwiches, but they'll give you as many as you want, and then a bunch of desserts and sides. And so that's a proper English tea. And that, we hadn't eaten anything, and it was getting close to 1 o'clock, and so we stopped at McDonald's. I want to say to you, don't ever stop at McDonald's right before eating a proper English tea. That is a complete waste of appetite and money, okay? Because you can eat as much food as you want, and it's all way better than anything that McDonald's serves. Sorry, McDonald's. But the point is, it is, all right? So we didn't know we were going to the tea, but if we had known, we would not have gone to McDonald's. If you were going to heaven, why would you live the 70, if lucky, 100 years of, your, of this life? Why would you live that period of time in a way that does not reflect your end destination? That would be foolish. Why would I want to suck out of this lifetime entertainment? Why would I want to suck out of this lifetime something that resembles joy? Why would I want to suck out of this lifetime something that makes me feel good about myself when I know that my end destination could be a place that fulfills all of that and a million times more? If you know where you're going, then you don't have to worry as much about getting everything out of the journey. And God is able to move out of the way barriers that you cannot even begin to perceive. I know that even that is an oversimplification, but we need to be aware that God is at work in ways that we do not understand. When I got up this morning, I went to put on a red shirt. Now, the red shirt happens to be one that I don't really care for the sleeves, but I thought, I feel like wearing a red shirt today. I got it all the way off. Not buttoned, but all the way off. When God said, wear a pink shirt. Wear the pink shirt. I only have one pink shirt, so I'm wearing the pink shirt. Do I know why, other than possibly for this illustration? No, I have no idea. But I can't tell you the number of times I go to the closet, and I'm going to put on one thing, and God tells me to wear something else. I don't know why God did not tell me to take my umbrella when I went out in the rain, but he tells me what to wear on a regular basis. I suppose God wanted me to get rained on. Who am I to question what is going to happen after God tells me what to do? Who are you to question what is going to happen after what God tells you to do? Your job is to figure out what God tells you to do and do it, and then God will take care of everything else. God alone knows what the fantastic, the incredible, the amazing, beyond comprehension weave of your life will look like. He alone knows how many failings, or bad decisions may be required, how many times turning back to him may be required in order to turn you into that being that he is trying to make you into that better symbolizes and signifies him so that he can say, this is my child. This one belongs to me. If you live a life milking life for everything it's worth without a, without thinking about what it's going to be like, then when he comes to you and says, well done, good and faithful servant, you would have a tinge of guilt. You'd be like, no, not really, Jesus. Or when you step into that courtroom, if there is anything like that, and you are read your sins, and then Jesus says, but nonetheless, this one belongs to me. I paid for all of that. And everyone's list is going to be long. Don't kid yourself. It's all going to be long. Now, it may all happen in an instant, it may not be anything as drawn out as that, but the point is, what will you feel like after you know what you did, and then hear, to hear him say, but I died for this one, so this one belongs to me. God alone knows what the fantastic weave of your life might look like. But the stuff that he can move out of your way is bigger than what you can see or perceive. And that's largely what RJ was talking about when he was talking about moving across the base of the river and all the stuff that would theoretically still have been in the way, and God moved it all. 
not so one could pass, but so an entire nation of 12 tribes could pass. The last thing in here, and this one is, as I said, this one is really a passion for me. Um, there are several things about God in this text that you might see that, uh, that you also might glance over. So these are things about God that may be deduced from the details here and included. I'll go quickly. First one that is God is poetic. Poets measure out the right words, and they put them in the right order, and they make them all connect together. God is poetic. God is sentimental. Poets mark moments in, I'm sorry, sentimental people mark moments in time. They save a little picture, they save a little trinket, whatever. God is sentimental. God is flamboyant. He wasn't willing to give wood so they could build a bridge. He wanted to part a river. Make a great statement for who he was. God is organized. He had this planned a long time in advance. As Tony pointed out, it's the bookend of the miracles, the Red Sea and the Jordan. God is intentional. Kid yourself not, this story happened exactly the way God had planned it. He said, on this day, God will begin to exalt you as he had told. On this day, you will have this testimony that God is going to keep his promise exactly what he said he was. God is prepared. Twelve tribes. The long story all the way back to Abraham. The cloud of fire that they followed. Generous and considerate. God is concerned about what people think. Ooh, that one hurt me. Because a long time ago I decided to be free in Christ and not care about what other people think. Ouch. But God cares about what other people think. Why? Because God is actively battling in their mind. He's in there fighting. When you go, I don't care what they think, he's going, but I do. And so if God cares what they think, it's your job to try to sway what they think. You can't persuade, you can't hypnotize, but you should not be the stumbling block. And the list could go on. I don't think that's complete at all, but this text says a lot of things about God. We went to England and visited a whole bunch of historical places. Uh, they have managed their history in an incredible way. You can walk through um, an art exhibit, see statues of people. Do you know that they have been worshiping in uh, Westminster Abbey? There's never been a day, a single calendar day, in which they have not worshiped in, I think it was 1,600 years. That's hard for us to even fathom. They now have 28 services a week. 28. It's the Church of England. The Queen worships there. All the coronation ceremonies, every king, every single monarch who has ever been put in place for the last 1,600 years got their crown put on their head there in the presence of the priest. And they have it all marked out. You can see all that. You can't walk through that building without getting, I mean, you could if you really tried, like plug your ears and close your eyes, but otherwise you're going to see what's there. It's all laid out. The statues are there. Marble statues of kings and queens who died or dukes and duchesses who died with perfectly lifelike human children carved in marble kneeling next to their bed. One had four boys and four girls and they kneel next to the bed of the king. So their lifelike, what they look like in their lifetime is recorded Forever. I'm here to say to you that probably uh, no one's going to remember what I looked like in a couple hundred years. But since 1653, the one I was just talking about, has been there. The man, the woman, laying in bed in peaceful, peaceful repose with their eight children in marble all around them. Their history is marked out there to be seen. Now, 
I think that may be a little over the top. But God is obviously concerned about what has gone on, and he has orchestrated it. God did not intend for the story to stop existing. We are his story, and we are supposed to witness. What does 1 John 1, 3 say? We proclaim what we have seen and heard. That's the history. It's not what we're seeing and hearing right now. I mean, it is that, but it's everything that we've seen and heard to this point, right? So the history is supposed to remain. The Bible is our history, but stops... 16, 1700 years ago. And then there is a history of the church since then. And that history is supposed to be significant to us. And our history now as a church is supposed to be significant. Why? Because God is poetic. He is sentimental. He is intentional. He's concerned about what people think. Since about 1960, there has been a saying, and we're coming to the conclusion here shortly, but first we have a little video. There has been sent a saying the devil is in the details. So just real quick, so we make sure that we understand, I want to read these two passages of scripture, a passage of verse that come from a, it's more like a script, I guess you could say, come from a website that explains what the devil in the details means. Okay? And these two examples, first example, Ted and Rufio. Ted says, did you hear about what happened at the museum? No, what was it? Apparently one of the very famous paintings they had was a forgery. Are you serious? How did they find out about it? Well, the painting was almost perfect. It looked the same in every way. However, it turned out that the particular artist used a very specific type of hair in his paintbrushes. It came from a specific breed of cat. Rufio says, huh? That in the forgery, there was a piece of hair from a horse. The real painter would never have used those. It's amazing that something so small can cause such a big difference. I guess that's why they say the devil is in the details. The meaning of the devil in the details in this dialogue shows the two friends talking together about an embarrassing situation in the library. One about to read. Zena says to Ben, I'm so embarrassed. Why? What happened? Well, the library is so big, I've gotten lost in here a few times. So did you get lost again? Not exactly. I asked for directions to the bathroom from one of the librarians, and she gave me fantastic directions. They were so detailed, and I did a great job remembering them. They worked perfectly, and once I saw the bathroom, I figured it was okay to forget the rest of the directions. Ben says, sounds fine to me. What was the problem? I actually accidentally walked into the men's room, she says. I wasn't even thinking about which bathroom it was. Since I was so proud, I followed the majority of the directions correctly. I should have paid closer attention. The devil is in the details, after all. The devil in the details is a saying that comes from a man. Ludwig is his name. I'm going to watch a short video. But, uh, Autumn, can you queue up the video? You think you can handle that? Since all our tech guys are teaching children now? The devil in details is actually a, a uh, variation of the saying. It comes from this man, Ludwig, Ludwig Lee Rohan is his name. And he used to say, God is in the details. Watch this video. The Federal Center's architect, Nice van der Rohe, is considered by many to be the father of the modern glass and steel skyscraper. His motto was, less is more. Mies believed in distilling architecture to its purest essentials. Instead of form following function, Mies tried to invent a universal design adaptable to every function. This became known as the international style. It's also widely called the second Chicago School of Architecture. 
Mies was born and trained in Germany and headed the legendary Bauhaus School of Design there. But he closed the school in 1933 because of growing harassment from the Nazis. In 1937, he took a job in Chicago as head of architecture at what is now the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago's South Side. He not only redesigned the architecture program at IIT, he also redesigned the entire campus. Mises' personality seemed to match his austere vision. His Chicago apartment had almost no furniture in it. Among his few indulgences were fine cigars and a collection of paintings by Paul Clay. Mises' federal building is one of four big government buildings on our tour. Historically, many government buildings in this country have been modeled on Greek and Roman architecture. Like the old federal building that once stood on this site, designed by Henry Ives Cobb. The 16-story dome was larger in diameter than the U.S. Capitol Dome. The interior was polished granite, white marble, and gilded bronze, according to the book Lost Chicago by David Gerard Lowe. It was demolished in 1965. With his new federal center, Nice replaced splendor with simplicity. He created three enormous dark slabs. A flat one, a wide one, and a tall one. It carefully arranged them on a broad, open plaza. Mies said God is in the details, and he spent countless hours working out the exact proportions for his buildings. He even specified the placement of these seams in the plaza's pavement. Look how they line up exactly with the window mullions and columns in each of the three buildings. In a sense, this is Mises' graph paper. Mies didn't coin the phrase, the devil is in the details. He coined the phrase, God is in the details. So how in 1960 did we get to the point of the devil is in the details? Because it's talking about the catch, the snag, the problem. So in the details, in the choices, the little moments, if you will, is the catch, the snag, the problem. So the devil is in the details. Nice was saying the God, that God is in the details. I submit to you, that means the war is in the details. Stacy was talking about needing to get down on her knees to be focused on prayer. Ron was talking about learning the, the words of wisdom so that he can manage his life. We have a dozen more illustrations that we could use just in one service. God is trying to get you to focus on the details. I watched a, 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 an episode of Stargate One years ago. I used to love that show. And um, there was a certain episode that quoted a kind of an adage from like Indian culture or something like that. And it said, um, by the time you eat warm dinner, I'm paraphrasing, the flame was invented a long time ago. It's not time anymore for us to be dealing with things like, should we lie? Or should we steal? Or should we lust? That's settled. You said you would be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the blatant sin should no longer be an option. It, it's no longer possible for us to live a life as true believers that indulges in the things that the world 
says are okay. So where does the devil come at us? If you would go, like, it's happened to me, right? If I would say, well, if I take that, that would be stealing. So I'm just not going to do that, right? We were driving down 75. We stopped in at Walmart, bought a bunch of stuff, and I carried a book out under my arm that shared one of the bottom of the $4 paperback book. And we got in the car and drove away and went, oh, we didn't pay for the book. 50 miles down the road, stopped at another Walmart, walked in, talked to the customer service desk and said, hey, we were 50 miles up the road. We stole this book by accident. We need to pay for it. They looked at us like we had two heads. But the bottom line is, I'm never, ever, ever going to steal anything in my life again, not intentionally or on accident. I will not do that because that's thievery and it goes against the God of the universe. But the devil was in the details tempting me to keep a book I didn't pay for arranging the circumstances so that the book was under my arm instead of on the belt so it could be paid for, and so on. And you're going to encounter things in your life over and over and over again, and they may, be, they may seem small or insignificant, but before you think they are small or insignificant, remember God is, both, he is poetic, and he is sentimental, and he is prepared, and he is organized, and he is gracious and gentle, but he expects respect. Even in the details. God is in the details. And so as you live your life, there is a moment in time when you decide not to go on, not to press, not to go further. Like when I said, well, we don't have to know how to go in reverse because we're just not going to go in reverse. But then as I was parked across the road and couldn't go forward because the curb was in front of me, I, I even, believe me, I debated, but there was a tree. Okay, I thought I'd just drive up on the curb and go and then I'll be on the wrong side of the road for a moment and eventually I'll be, and I'm like, no, I'll hit the tree. There was no room. And so we say it's not necessary to go in reverse. We dismiss it, but then the devil is in the details. We need to be led of the Spirit. We need to be learning what God has for us to know and we need to be living accordingly so that when the details surface and you start going, I don't think I have to worry about that. I don't think that's such a big deal. No, I'm free in Christ. Listen to me. If you ever say, I can do that and it won't be a problem because I'm free in Christ, saved by grace, there's a chance you're not saved. Because no one who was saved would spit on the memory of the person who died for them like that. That would be like somebody who was in war in Korea. It'd be far worse than this, in fact. And on the first day they're there, some guy dies on a grenade to save their life. And right after the war, the first thing they do is go stomp on his grave. No, he died for us, so we don't intentionally give up those choices ever. And if Scripture specifically speaks to it and says don't do it, then that's not even in the details. That's just in the, ah, duh, this is what I'm not supposed to do. And then the details come, and the little problems arise, and we begin to ask ourselves, well, should I push to go that far? Should I do this extra thing? Should I make sure that's covered? Should I make it perfect? Or is just good enough good enough? And the devil wants you to dishonor God there. And I think we have a real problem. Because I think a lot of people are still stuck deciding whether or not to dishonor God with their intentional choices. Adultery and lying and stealing and, and so on. And that's supposed to be settled and determined. There is a moment in time where you decide not to go on, not to do that one more thing or to concern yourself with that extra detail when you decide to leave well enough alone because it just seems like it's too much work. But the thing that you could go on and do is the very thing that God desired. It's not sin, and it's particularly useful for him for some aspect of kingdom advance, possibly even advancing you 
You say, but if I do that, I could wind up dead or we could lose our house or we could whatever. And God seems to be calling you to do that. And then you go, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to, it just seems like it's, it's too small a thing for me to go the extra mile on when it's exactly what God has called you to, exactly what God has called you to do. And where do you wind up? I have to quote Dr. Seuss, in the waiting place. God is waiting for you while you're waiting for him. And he's not coming because he's in the details. You're waiting for him to do something amazing. And he's in the details where you refuse to be. Don't leave out God. Don't leave out the truth in that moment. The devil really is in the details rather than God. And you don't want that. God help us. Just a brief recap, we're done. Number one, God is a witness so that your witness for God becomes a witness for you as long as your witness for God is for the one who is for you. Number two, the stuff that God can move out of your way is bigger than you can ever imagine or see or perceive. And number three, things about God that may be deduced from this passage of Scripture are He's poetic, sentimental, flamboyant, organized, intentional, prepared, generous, considerate, concerned about what people think. And he's in the details. It's time we started concerning ourselves with the details. And when you do that, the big choices about lust and thievery and deception, whether or not to honor God when you get out of bed in the morning, those big choices, they'll be settled. And the details will honor God. And that's what we desire, isn't it? If it isn't, I suggest you repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you for listening to all or a portion of this full-length New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church worship service. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church is located in East Toledo at 255 Hefner Street, 43605. If you'd like to reach out to the church, our phone number is 419-469-8808. Our website is newheightsfellowshipchurch.org where you can find lots more information about the church, its connections, and how to give. You, may, you can mail uh, information to the church at the address 255 Hefner 43605. You can also give to the ministry in some way if you wish by texting G-I-V-E, G-I-V-E, to 419-419-0095. If you'd simply like more information and updates about the ministry, you may text INFO to that same phone number, 419-419-0095. If you'd like to partner with the ministry in some way other than financial, you may text P-A-R-T-N-E-R, -E the word partner, to 419-419-0095. He is the Lord, that God raised him from the dead, and he'll save you.